Pastor Wayne uh, had pneumonia this week, and uh, to his credit, he let me know that, like early in the week. He says, hey, I've got pneumonia, I might, might not be able to, to speak on Sunday, and I said, okay, you know, we'll get something together if I have to, and he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So he didn't, like, clench it <laughs> then. I'm like, okay, maybe I won't have to preach for so he calls me up on Friday, and I'm like, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it. And I, okay, I was planning on spending the entire day up at my daughter's house with my granddaughter, and uh, so yesterday I went to the office. And... So they say any idiot can get up and speak for an hour. It takes, it takes a real work to get up and speak for 15, 20 minutes. Amen. Yeah, um, I'm that idiot today that's going to get up and speak for an hour probably. Um, whenever, whenever I get asked to, to preach and it's kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing, I usually go with what I, what's been on my mind already. And if you guys don't know, I'm the international director, or actually the director of Set Free Global down the street here. And uh, I was trying to... People call us a, a Christian counseling office. People, that's what they think of when they think of Set Free. Well, we're, they, they do Christian counseling. And that's not really true, because I've been through Christian counseling, I've done Christian counseling, and what we're doing there is a little bit different. It's more a doing of the word rather than a hearing of the word. And we had a young man come in <clears throat> within the last month, and he got saved. Right in the beginning of, the, of his freedom appointment, he received Christ as Savior. And the thing that shocked me is that he reminded me of me. I wasn't in that freedom appointment, but... As a kid, I went to a Presbyterian church until I was 14 years old and never once made the connection that Jesus Christ was God. Can you imagine? You know, and that, this kid had been going to a CRC church all of his life and had never made the connection that he had to actually do this. It wasn't something that you just come to church and you hear the message and you go home. That he, There was a response that was required of him. And they connected all the dots for him in scripture and he, he saw it. He's like, I've never done that. I've never actually received Christ as my savior. Having been to church all of his life. And I thought, brothers and sisters, may it never be, you know, that somebody could even come here and not connect those dots. And I'm not going to preach a message about salvation, but I'm going to preach a message about responding to our faith, Resp the response of faith. I don't have anybody in mind when I wrote this message in particular. And pastors get that sometimes. You know, you'll have somebody who will be irate after a message. Who told you? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> that has never happened. I have never once preached a message because someone came to me and said, you know, so-and-so is doing such-and-such, -and, -such, and you better dot, dot, dot. And I get up and preach a message. I've never, ever done that. And, and people have come with that kind of information, not to me here, but you know, as a pastor, you get that those people come, and they expect you to do something about it. Well, the flip side of that is sometimes when you preach about a certain topic, people think you're talking about them, and that's the Holy Spirit at work, folks. That's not, that's not inside information. I'm not playing inside baseball here. Um, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, it will be in verses uh, 46 through 49, and I'm going to be all over the Bible today, okay, because that's the second secret to having to preach on short notice, 
is you bomb people with scripture. It's already written down. It's already in there. It's all in the Bible. You know, you just got to give them lots of it and let the word speak for itself. So that's hopefully what we're going to do today. Less of my ramblings and more of the word of God. Okay. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49, Jesus is speaking. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And in my notes, I put that in yellow, which means that's really important. That means pound on this one a while, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is that that torrent, that flood, hit both houses, right? People have this idea that if I go to church... That if I pray every day and I read my prescribed one chapter of scripture each day and memorize verses and do all these things, then I'm going to live a trouble-free life. The the, the torrent's not going to hit me. I promise you that's not the case. You can do all the do's, and that flood's going to hit your house. And this is Michigan. I've seen a lot of flooded basements. I used to inspect foreclosed homes. And I have seen basements that were filled up to the rafters. Where literally you open the door to the basement and the water is right there at the lapping at the floor. That's just how Michigan is, isn't it? Where it's like the whole state's a swamp practically, you know? But if the flood's gonna hit your house, whether you're a good person or you're not, whether you're obeying the word of God or you're not obeying the word of God, whether you are putting these things into practice or not, that flood is going to hit your house. This is planet Earth. No one gets out of here alive, you know? It's going to happen. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? So what's your relationship with him like? And we come to church every week. We've got our regulars. You know, you got your people that come on Christmas and Easter. They call them creasters, right? And some of us sit in judgment on them, don't we? We kind of look, oh, they showed up again this year. You know, and we have that kind of thought. And praise God they're here, right? Praise God they came to church. That's their journey, right? They're on that journey, and we're to be welcoming to them. But people often come to church out of a sense of obligation that this is just the thing I do. My family's always gone to church, right? That's how I was for 14 years. As a kid growing up, you went to church. My parents got us up. We put on the uncomfortable shoes only for an hour. Right? And it's never only for an hour because they talk for an hour afterwards drinking coffee. But it was an obligation all those years. And I wasn't listening, wasn't connecting the dots. And no one discovered that I hadn't connected the dots either until I went to a Christian camp out in Colorado. They were there to connect the dots for all of us. What is your relationship with Jesus like? And are you that person who is coming to him, hearing his words, and putting them into practice is unshakable. How many times have you heard somebody say, if it wasn't for my faith, I couldn't have made it through that? Raise your hands. You heard somebody say that? Maybe you said it yourself at some point. If it wasn't for my faith, I wouldn't have made it through. And it's almost a cliche that we hear those words. 
that your life is going to be shaken. You will get that call at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's a horrible thing when the phone rings at 3 o'clock. Nothing good. <laughs> Dad, you're never going to believe it. I won the lottery. You know? You're not going to hear that at 3 o'clock in the morning. You're going to have to get in the car and go somewhere, and there's going to be some kind of smoking wreckage, or you know, there's something bad has happened, and those things are going to, going to happen. And if you are the kind of person who is basing your life on eternal truth, when that happens, when your house is shaken, it's not going to fall because it will be shaken. And this other one is the one who hears his words and does not put them into practice. The voice of God in this situation, in this person's life, is a voice among others. It's one opinion. Where they know what the word of God says, but it's like, okay, I, I see that, but then there's also this, and there's that, and this thing to consider, and you know, there's other factors, and what will my family think, or what will my boss think? I fought with that one time at, at an office. My boss was there, and a certain person called, and he says, tell him I'm not here. I said, he can't come to the phone right now. I got in hot water over that, because I didn't just lie to Bob from Reading Industrial Scrap, because Bob was a pain. Bob was a difficult person, and nobody wanted to talk to Bob. But my boss wanted me to lie for him. Tell him I'm not here. You obviously are. You just told me to tell you, say this lie, you know? And I said, yeah, he can't come to the phone. Well, you better get him. Okay. Well, he still can't come to the phone. <laughs> you know? I wasn't going to lie, but, you know, it was one of those things. Why do we make such small compromises all the time? We know what the Word of God says and yet we don't do it. And I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to you. You know, I wish I could get up here and say, yeah, my life is a perfect obedience. It's not. I still struggle with all these, you know, different things. How do you navigate life? Are you, what is your practice? What is your house? What, when you, how do you respond to the word of God? James chapter 2. You're gonna, you might keep your, your Bible open to there. I'm going to be bouncing around all over Scripture. But James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Now understand, James is not advocating salvation by deeds in this passage. Okay? Our, our works, the, thing, the good things that we do in response to our faith are not what establishes our salvation it's not what gives us salvation. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross paid it all. Amen? Amen? It's not Jesus plus. Jesus, death, and good works. But there's a transformation that happens in a life which is given over to Jesus Christ. When he enters into your life and he saves you, good things happen. There's a difference that it makes. There's evidence of that in people's lives. Now, there were people in the early church who were taking the message of believe in Jesus Christ to the light side, okay, where, yeah, that's all easy believism. If I believe, then I'm, I'm good. If I go to church, I'm okay. I have met people here in West Michigan who say, well, of course I'm a Christian. My family's always gone to X or whatever church. Okay, that's a good thing. What have you done with that? What have you done with that? What result 
What transformation, what change did that bring about in your life? James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Now, he's not saying you have to do deeds to be saved. He's questioning the quality of your faith or what you consider to be your faith. Yeah, I believe. Okay. What, is, what did that result in? What changes has that brought about? Can such a faith save them? Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical deeds, what good is it? What good is it? What, what did you do there? You know, person's laying in the gutter. Well, God bless you, brother, and walk on. Where is your faith? What is your, how has your faith informed your decision to do that? Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, you're always going to act upon what you believe. Now, you've all had the experience where you put something in the oven, frozen pizza, whatever, wings, you turn that oven on, 10 minutes later, what happens? Smoke alarm goes off, doesn't it? Bop, bop, bop. You get this thing going, it's, you're trying to watch TV, you're waiting for your wings, and the smoke alarm's going off. Again, right? Every time you turn on the oven, maybe you should clean the oven, right? I'm just talking about my house here, but... <laughs> You turn that thing on, and 10 minutes later, we're, we have two smoke alarms, and we're scrambling to you know, get those things to shut off. Okay, now, you've done this a dozen times. Like in my house, it's several times a week. You know? So you jump up, and you start running for the smoke alarm, and you look over, and you notice that your kitchen is actually on fire. There's flames shooting out where our stove used to be, and, and you know, that plastic bowl you left is now in flames or whatever. That has not happened yet in our house, okay? <laughs> but I'm saying, you're always going to act on what you believe, right? If I believe my smoke alarm's going off because I'm cooking a pizza and, you know, it's just overdue to clean that oven, I've got some cheese smoking away on the bottom of my oven, you know, and again, haven't, still haven't dealt with that problem, and you go smoke for the smoke alarm. But then you notice, no, that's actually my kitchen's on fire. Now, that happened when I was a kid. We were out playing Frisbee in the backyard, and we hear the smoke alarm going off, which had been installed two weeks before. And we had no, never really heard it go off, I don't think. And all of a sudden, we run in the kitchen to get this smoke alarm off. And the kitchen garbage can's on fire. And there's a roll of paper towels above it, which is starting to burn. And this is a bad situation. And we put, my brothers and I put the fire out. 20 years later, Thanksgiving dinner, my mom brings this story. I remember we almost burned down the house? And my brother Carl says, yeah, I did that. <laughs> We had no idea for 20 years how that fire happened, right? He threw a match in there, and it landed on an oily piece of paper, and he thought, I should double-check that. But he didn't, and lit our kitchen on fire. But you're always going to act upon what you believe. If you believe it's just a smoke alarm going off because the oven's smoking again, you're just going to go for the smoke alarm. If you look, and all of a sudden now I believe my kitchen's on fire, I'm going to do a different course of action. You will always act out what you believe. You won't always act out what you profess, we say all kinds of things. I believe this, I believe that. We've got an entire Bible here of things that we boldly affirm and, and confess and profess and say, yes, that's, that's what I believe. But are we acting upon those things? What are you doing with that? Faith by itself, head knowledge, 
what I know about God, what I know about Scripture, what I know about life is all up here. But does it ever get to your hands and your feet? Does it come out your mouth? Are you doing something with this? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And believe me, they do. They believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And you might be, someone here might think, I've never heard that story. What's that all about? Well, I'm going to take you to Genesis here, Genesis 22, verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Wow. I've got my only son here. I've got two daughters too, but they're not here. My daughter's sick. I can't imagine getting this message from God. Can you imagine being told this? If you're confused about a burnt offering, an offering, a burnt offering is an offering burnt upon an altar as a religious rite, specifically in a Jewish ritual, an animal or animals of a prescribed kind, the whole of which, after ceremonial preparation, was burned upon an altar, a holocaust. And they really sugarcoated here. They really made it politically correct by using those words ceremonial preparation. After it's ceremonial prepared, ceremonially prepared, then they would burn it, okay? Well, that means cutting its throat, killing it. And he's been told, take your son to a mountain, I will show you, Moriah, and sacrifice them there as a burnt offering. Verses 7 and 8, Genesis 22, Isaac spoke up. He's walking towards, you know, he leaves his servants behind. He loads the wood onto Isaac. Isaac is actually carrying the fuel of his own cremation. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Back in the day, they used to actually carry live coals in like a, like a pot, and then they would use those to spark up the fire. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. You see, this is the response of faith. This is Abraham being told by God to do something which is incredibly bewildering, just incredibly traumatizing thing to hear that God's calling you to do. I can imagine the doubt that crept into his mind. Did I really hear that? You know, how many times do we read in Scripture what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do, and we just don't do it? It's like, does God really require that of me? Am I going to build this on the foundation of God's Word, on the truth, or am I just going to go with my own head and think what I should do? I can imagine Abraham thinking, what did I do? To deserve this. 
What did I do to be placed in this situation so that God would require this of me? What failing in me is God punishing me for? And we know from the rest of the story it was none of those things. Genesis 22, verses 9 through 26. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. I don't imagine he did that quickly. Rock by rock, log by log, he's doing this. He's doing the work, waiting on God. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Maybe his reprieve will come. Maybe something will happen. He didn't know. But he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. In verse 10, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Guys, I can't imagine doing this. I mean, I can't imagine the, the tremendous emotional weight that he had when he reached out his hand. And by that, at that time in history, it would have been a stone knife, an obsidian, like a giant sharp piece of glass, some of the sharpest material in the world. They're lethal. He reached out his hand and took the knife. Hold on. We discuss things before I preach sometimes. Okay? But the angel of the Lord called out from, to him from heaven. Not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. This is, most theologians believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Godhead, the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus himself. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Imagine Isaac was relieved there as well. You know, laying there on top of the wood all tied up. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And it was that son... Mm, He's given us a picture here of what he's planning to do himself, the burden that he took upon himself, that God the Father carried through with that sacrifice of his only son. And here we have that only son saying, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. This is a headwaters event in the life of the nation of, of Israel. This is at the very beginning of their history. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, this is the book of Genesis. To this day. To this day. They're looking at their distant past here. You know, Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. This is long, long ago in their history that this event happened. We know from Chronicles 3, verse 1, it says this, Then Solomon, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That God did this for Abraham on the very place that he was going to build the temple the very place where Jesus was going to be sacrificed was there, that place. To this day, Solomon's temple was built 1,088 years after Abraham 
almost sacrificed Isaac on Mount Moriah. We're talking a thousand years later. Isn't that incredible? The planning of God, the way he puts it all together, the way he builds all these things into that culture, his chosen people, to show us who he is. And we have this wonderful story because Abraham responded in faith. He was told to do something by God, and he did it, to the very point of reaching out to grab the knife. And I imagine that was a decision that he long pondered, but all of a sudden he reached out and grabbed that knife. And do you notice the urgency with which the angel of the Lord speaks to him? Abraham, Abraham, stop. Don't do anything to the boy. Because I imagine Abraham's there, and he's just like, I got to do it. When I was teaching wilderness survival in Brazil, one of the things we would do is take live quail out to the bush because we weren't allowed to hunt, but we'd teach them how to make bird traps that would catch a live bird. And it's to teach them how to process the live birds, we had to take live quail with us. They cost like $1.50 each. You know, so we'd have a big cardboard box full of quails and not packed full, but you know, two quails per person, something like that. And you have to kill these quails, right? So I would just take my knife and I said, okay, the first thing you do, I just lop the head off their thing, just pluck the bird. And the killing of the bird was something which, you know, of course we've got to do this. So I just make it quick, you know. First thing you do is got to pluck the bird. I'd lop the head off and start plucking the bird, okay? It's like, we got to get over this. You have to actually kill the bird to eat it. It's very rude to eat a live bird, right? So the students then would have to kill their own quails and they all had a knife and they all had to do this and, you know, this one kid, he puts, he puts the knife, the, the bird down on a log, and he's gently trying to saw off the head of the bird. I'm like, no, dude, no, whack. Just one, make it quick, make it happen, you know, don't. <laughs> I'm sure Abraham understood that principle, you know, and that's why the Lord was urgent when he spoke to him, because he was about to do it for real. And the Lord judges the, the thoughts and knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he knew, okay, make it happen right now. This kid suffered enough. He acted upon his faith. James 22, James 2.22 says, You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. How can we say he was believing in God at this time? How do we know? Until that moment, until he acted upon his faith in obedience to something very difficult. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, and that's in the human sense, that I know this person is a believer, I know this person is a Christian, because I see what they do. I can look at my own life and say, yeah, I'm a believer, because I know that I... I'm acting upon these beliefs. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just something I do on Sunday. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Again, you might not be familiar with that story. Joshua chapter 2 says this, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go over the land, he said, especially Jericho. This is before they attacked Jericho, the first city that they destroyed. So they went and entered a house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. 
Now, this tells us what they did, okay? Doesn't, this isn't a plan of action for anyone here, okay? You're not a spy sent into the land, but I imagine if you were, that would be a place that you would not draw attention if you went. Two guys visiting a brothel, you know, that's what happens, right? Guys go in there. Okay, so they, that's what they did. The king of Jericho was told, look, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his, this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you. I imagine they're looking for any strangers, okay? And this will be a place that strangers might go. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. She's not saying, you know, she's, she's trying to play this as ignorant as she can here, just playing dumb. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. At, at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. Now, flax was a fibrous stem and it, it has all kinds of fibers in there and it, when it when the outside of it rots it produces all this fiber and they would use that for weaving clothes and I guess this is a little side business she had going there. Joshua chapter 2 verses 8 says this, before the spies lay down for the night she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting with, in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Isn't that cool? I mean, everybody knew. It's like, how did this massive nation of people just suddenly appear on this land? Oh, yeah, the Lord dried up. Their God split the Red Sea, and they came over here on dry land. That's how they got over there. They didn't come through here to get there. It's like, where did this people come from? Who would come from that direction? They knew. This is a problem. Our local gods don't do that. Like they say in Brazil, the saints in your own house don't do miracles. Right? That's, you guys remember that one? Santa de casa não faz milagre. The saints in your own house don't do miracles. Okay, you can pray to them all you want, and nothing happens. All right? The local gods, they, they can't do that. They've never seen anything like this. And the whole region knew, oh my goodness, the Israelites, the, their God is the real deal. And this woman has heard this story, and she's like, these guys have come here to spy out the land, and their God did that for them. She goes on, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed... When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Wow. Your God is the God. He is the real deal. There is no, no doubt in our minds, in my mind. Everyone's terrified. And what did she do about that? She risked her life. She put her life on the line. Well, I would rather go up the, against the king of Jericho any day than up against your God. And to prove that, I'm going to hide you here, and you're going to remember me when you guys come and destroy this city. You remember me. And she was the only 
person's, her, her and her family, I, I had to, didn't do the research on that. She was spared when the city was destroyed. So James says, again in James 2, 26, as the body without a spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. If she believed all those things and held them in her heart and never acted upon it, she would have been slaughtered by the rest of the city. If Abraham believed God asked him to do that but didn't obey, how would we, not, how, how would we ever have this beautiful picture of, what God, of God sacrificing his own son in that very place? This is powerful stuff. But in both cases, their faith, acting upon their faith, dramatically changed everything. I mean, for Rahab, when the, when the flood came, and the flood being the nation of Israel coming to destroy Jericho and collapsing those walls, when the flood came against her house, it stood because she acted in faith, and God respects that. God understands the position you're in. God understands the life you live. God understands the fact that you don't see the future. He does. And he's telling you how to live. But are you doing it? He tells you to forgive. Are you forgiving? Have you done that? That's the, that's the thing I love about my job so much. It's bringing people through that process of doing the word. We're going to go through seven areas of your life where people have lots of hidden sin, and we're going to confess and repent of that and ask God to forgive us today. We're not going to counsel you and tell you what God says about your sins. We're going to lead you through the process of actually cleaning that out of your life. And we see time and time again, people come in and they're, they're just crushed under the load of sin that they're carrying. And then they actually do the word. They do the word of God. They actually repent. And it's a beautiful thing. And then we tell them, look, this is something, not something you just come here to do. This is something that you get to do now every day, right? To do the word and not just be a hearer only. Jesus confronted people that really, really knew Scripture. In fact, his most difficult, his harshest words were spoken against people that knew the Bible inside and out. They had massive portions of it memorized. We're talking like the book of Isaiah, the Pharisees. These guys were the Scripture dudes. They were the rock stars of their culture. They were the ones who were put up on a pedestal because they had taken the Word of God and they had they had codified it into rules and regulations. The Word of God says this. Okay, so how do we measure that? What are the metrics here? Okay, we're not supposed to do any work on a Sunday, on a, on a Sabbath, actually, the Saturday. We're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Well, what does work mean? Can you make your bed on the Sabbath? Is that work? Well, making the bed's okay, but sweeping the house, no, nah, you can't, can't do that. Well, I'm a bricklayer. So what constitutes the work of making of masonry or making laying blocks? Well, you can't transport bricks, obviously. You can't carry your tools around. You can't make mortar that would all these things are prohibited. And Jesus, it, it drove him crazy. These picky little rules that they use the word of God to, to, to measure other people. It wasn't taking, taken in. He called them whitewashed tombs. Your outsides are decorated and pretty. Inside, you're just full of rot. The Sermon on the Mount, he takes the external commandments and he makes them internal. 
God said did not commit murder. But if you hate your brother, it's the same thing. It's an internal standard. Don't lust after a woman, but if, you know, don't, don't commit adultery. But if you're lusting in your heart, it's the same thing. You got to look inside. You got to take this word and apply it inside of your heart and measure yourself by it, not to measure other people. But the Pharisees were great at measuring other people, and they controlled the whole society, and they made all the rules, and they judged people. If you're a man of God, if you keep the Sabbath, if you obey the rules. And they had hundreds and hundreds of rules. John chapter 5, Jesus is at the pool of Siloam, and there's all the, the people laying around. And there's a crippled man there, and Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? Kind of an odd question, right? He's crippled, right? He obviously wants to be well, but that's a, that's a major life change. Do you want to be well? Do you want to get up and get a job? Start your own family? Start your own house? Take on real responsibilities rather than just laying there in the dust and begging? It's an easy life. Do you want to be well? Lots of people out there don't want to be well. You can show them the Word of God. You know, I used to have a policy when I was a pastor in Brazil. I'd say, okay, the first time you come in for counseling, that's free. When I tell you what the Word of God says and you ignore me and you go off and make the situation worse, I'm going to start charging you $25 an hour to come back. Of course, I never did that, but I tell people that. Because people don't want to be well. But anyway, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus is doing this directly in the face of these Pharisees who knew the word of God inside and out but had never applied it to their own hearts, had never actually been doers of the word, they're hearers only. Later in the chapter, John chapter 5, uh, verse 36 through 40, I have testimony weightier than that of John. Remember, John was the one who went before Christ and said, you know, this is the son of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He announced the presence of the Messiah. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. He's talking to the Pharisees here. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. He says something very interesting here about the Bible. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow. Talk about losing the plot. Talk about not understanding everything God has said to you. I mean, the wise men, we just heard this, you know, the story, the wise men came from the east. You know why? Because they knew the scripture. They knew when Messiah was supposed to come. They knew now's the time. Everything's aligned. This is the time that the Messiah is coming. So they went. And no, they didn't arrive at the manger. You know, we, we had our living nativity and the wise men showed up and the, you know, they didn't show up at the end. Okay, that's why Herod says, you know, kill all the babies that are under two years old. It took them a while to get there. But they came in response to their faith. They knew what God said, so then they moved. They did. The Pharisees missed that completely. The guys who had the Bible memorized. 
the guys who could recite it from memory never got to where it needed to go. It never got to their faith. It was just stuff that they did. We go to church every Sunday, rain or shine. And 14 years, never get the message that Jesus was God. This other guy, 20-some-odd years old, been to CRC Church all of his life, never connected the dots. I mean, someone's dropping the ball, right? Either he was dropping the ball by not paying attention or someone was not taking him aside and making sure that he understood these things so that he could act upon his faith, so that he could do what the Lord asked of him. Again, John chapter 9. Another literal poke in the eye to the Pharisees here. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, oh, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I've often thought about this guy. That's a hard role to play, isn't it? To be the man born blind. It wasn't because of his parents' sin. It wasn't because of his sin. This happened so that the glory of God can be displayed in him. That man had to be blind his whole life for this to happen. That's a hard burden to bear, to be the man born blind, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Easy thing to say, right? Hey, I'm the light of the world. Pay attention to me. Base your life on what I say. Make your decisions because what I've told you is true. I'm the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, isn't it, there's nothing curative in the saliva of Jesus. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, like, take up your mat and walk. You know, Jesus didn't smear mud on that man. He told him to take up his mat. That was the poke at the Pharisees. And this one, he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, and he puts it on the man's eyes. Breaking the law by doing the work of a mason, by making mortar. That was against the rules. You broke the code. We know he's not a man of God. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He doesn't measure up to our standard. The very ones who have rejected him, knowing all the word, but never connecting the dots, never coming to faith in Jesus. In the face of this, the man gets up and... We know he can't be a man of God because you're carrying your mat. We know this man is not from God because he did the work of masonry on a Sabbath by plastering over your eyes. And I wonder if these guys who had memorized the entire book of Isaiah, if it brought this verse to mind, Isaiah 44, 18, they know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. I guarantee you those Pharisees, that verse came to mind when this man had his eyes plastered over. And that verse is talking about idolatry. 
That whole passage is talking about idolatry and the, the guy who, who he carves the wooden idol and with some of the shavings he's cooking his dinner and then he bows down and worships this thing that he made in his own hands. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. And the, the Pharisees idolized the word. They didn't have their, put their faith in it. They used it as a club to bash other people. They used it as a, as a standard of rules and regulations, looking at their own righteousness. I'm going to establish myself before God in my own, my own flesh. I'm going to obey everything and do all the do's and don't do all the don'ts. And Jesus said, yeah, you look great on the outside, and inside you are rotten. Are we doing Christianity in that vein, in that light? Just doing all the do's and not doing the don'ts and doing all the things that are expected of us or required of us and never taking this book and letting it reach our heart, never letting it reach that point where we say, you know what, I'm being called to do a hard thing for God, a difficult thing, make a difficult choice, maybe break off a relationship or not go into a business partnership or something because I don't want to be unequally yoked. It's a hard thing. Sometimes God asks us to do things which are difficult. And do we obey them or not? Do we do it? Or do we just know it? They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. You will always act upon what you believe to be true. How does your faith inform your decisions? I ask you some tough questions here, which I ask myself as well. Why would anyone observing your life conclude you are a man or a woman of faith? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your unsaved family. Just observing your life. Now, this is a question which is not original to me, but they say originality is forgetting your sources, right? Originality is forgetting your sources. My pastor taught me that. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be witnesses to testify against you? If you were accused of being a Christian, how hard would it be to find witnesses to testify against you? Could the prosecution drum up people or would they have to pay people like they did Jesus to get, them, get witnesses to testify against him? Would there be enough evidence to get a conviction? If people looked at your life, you're on, on trial for being a Christian, what would they bring forth and say, yes, this, this person's conduct is Christian conduct. This person makes decisions based upon their understanding of the Word of God. They're obedient. Yeah, that's, that's what I love about, about working at Set Free is... is you, you want, you want your life to turn out better? You want your life to, to change direction? Let's start with obedience. Let's start there. Let's start by doing the Word of God. Let's start by, by building on that foundation and making the, the tough choices, doing the hard work, believing God in the face of opposition and voices that are telling you no, counseling you against obedience. Back to Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And he gives us this great formula here for living a life which is 
will stand the, the stand in the day of battle, which will stand in the storm. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. He comes to me. Have you come to Jesus? Have you gone to him? Have you connected those dots? Have you actually confessed your sin to him and placed your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection as the only payment for your sin? Have you done that? Was there a day that you've done that? And not everybody can point to a time or a date. I know lots of people who come to faith in a gradual way, but they come and they actually do these things. Jesus says, as for everyone who comes to me, John 6, 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven to, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. There's a doing that has to happen there. Just like the snake lifted up in the wilderness, the people actually, after they were bit, they had to go and look at that snake. If they didn't do that, they died of snake bite. But if they did go and look, they were healed. Have you gone to Jesus? Have you come to him? Has there been a time in your life where you said, Lord, you are the only hope I have. I am a hopeless sinner, and without you I am damned. There's a doing of this. You can know it. Lots of people know that and reject it. I had a guy one time, a witnessing to me, he repeated the entire gospel back to me, and he said, I don't want to do that. Mm. Where do you go? Three months later, he received Christ. Okay, but that night was really depressing. My brother and I witnessing to this guy, we were out camping, and he knew, but he didn't believe. Anyone who comes to me hears my words, that there's a message here. There's a body of truth here. What is your relationship to this? Knew a guy in Brazil, walked around, his Bible under his arm, everyone went, out in the village. He's a worker, field hand. Everywhere he went, walked around with his Bible. Only one problem, he was totally illiterate. He couldn't read a word of it, but he always carried his Bible. I said, why do you carry that Bible around? He says, oh, I don't want anything bad to happen to me. Okay, let's read it. Let's open it up. It does that, not in the way you're thinking, though. This isn't just a talisman, okay, that words off the bad things. We have to do this. Here's my words, Mark 8, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And folks, there is so much compromise right now in churches all over. And I'm not just talking about the LGBTQ plus consideration or question. There's compromise across the board in churches. Watering down the word giving people messages they want to hear, prosperity gospel, all that stuff. Because people are ashamed to say, no, this is what the truth is, and this is what we're going to do. John 14, 10 through 14, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. 
Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. It's easy to say these things, but you see what I do, right? Jesus is saying, you hear me say all these things, and they're big and they're hard to understand, but then you see the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Very, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. Interesting. Faith in action. You believe in me, you will do the works that I've been doing. You know, I say all the time, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it isn't Christianity, right? All kinds of things out there that claim to be Christianity look nothing like Jesus. And if it doesn't point to Jesus, it's not his message. He's central to everything. And he says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Wow. Even greater works. Are you doing the word? You're hearing it. Are we putting it into faith? Is our faith engaged? Is it turning into action? Are we actually being the hands and the feet of Jesus like he's calling us to here? How then can they call on the one whom they have not, not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear, this is Romans 10, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Verse 16, but not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? You can be a hearer of the word and sit in church your entire life and bust hell wide open, folks. Because you didn't believe, you didn't go there, you didn't act upon your faith. And then finally, who puts them into practice? Who comes to me, hears my word, and puts them, hears my words and puts them into practice. And this should be encouraging. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Wow. God prepared good things for you. And he says, he says in, in, in the, the previous passage, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Go into all the world, teaching them to obey everything I've told you. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. He is in you. He is with you. You don't do this alone. He's not asking you to do something that he's not prepared for you. He's not asking you to do something which he's not present in your life to accomplish. And he will give you every resource you need to accomplish his will. And praise God, we had that donation come in. He gave us everything that we need to do what he's called us to do. Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The putting into practice your faith, the doing, the working out of the word, the obedience to what God's called us to do, the reaching out into lives which are difficult to reach into. People are a mess. I speak that from personal experience. And... I've been a pastor long enough to be on the inside of a lot of lives, and there ain't nobody here who's not a mess, no matter how good you look. It's the truth. A lot of nodding heads, yeah. They're a mess, right? That's your thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that guy. I'm sorry, I pointed right at you, didn't I? <laughs> I thought you were referring to the person. Yeah, yeah. Well, put it this way. It applies, right? Y'all a mess. I'm a mess. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Stand firm, let nothing move you. This is the solid foundation. This is the place that you are safe if you're in obedience. Stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor, is not, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And of course, I could not close this without Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is the great chapter of faith. And you can go through the, I challenge you to do this. Read the chapter, the whole chapter. Okay, I could have camped here and used this chapter alone to teach this message. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Daniel. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. But you look at that chapter and you see name of person, faith in God, thing they did. By faith, so-and-so did. By faith, so-and-so conquered, vanquished, spoke, traveled. They believed and therefore they did. And that doing was the evidence of their faith. That was the outward expression of their faith where you could look at that guy and say, yeah, that's a man of faith right there. Why? Because he's acting upon his faith. He knows the word of God. He has come to Jesus. He has had a transformed life. He hears the word of God and he puts it into practice. And anybody can see, yeah, that guy's guilty of being a Christian. And in this world, which is increasingly going to persecute Christians, how much evidence is there that you should have the crosshair on you? How much evidence is there? You know, I was with a group of guys one time, and uh, one of the guys was talking about the government, it's getting this and that and other thing, and he says, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to get put on a list. And my friend Neil says, not put on the list? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I'd be ashamed to not be on this government's list. I'd be ashamed to not have them looking at me. That's, are you there with your faith? You know, are you there with your faith? Are you there to say, you know what? This world is making worse and worse decisions, and they're going literally farther and farther away from the Word of God, and I'm going to be exposed here. If I obey the Word of God and I speak the truth, I'm going to be marked out. And I pray that we would be on that list. I pray that we would be the people that people say, oh, yeah, the peer there, that's a church of faith because there's people who are obeying the Word of God. They're actually doing it. Amen? And with that, I will close. Told you, any idiot can get up and speak for an hour, right? So, <laughs> let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that it is the firm foundation. I thank you that it is faithful and does not return void. And that, Lord, we can come to you and we can stand in faith. We can act upon our faith, Lord, and experience a life which is ultimately unshakable. Lord, just thank you that I, your word is true. It applies in every aspect of our lives and that we can live a life which is truly transformed, that transforms other people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.